Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. start with a paragraph from the article that we read last night. Um, you don't have to follow along, I'll just, I'll just read. Um, the article uh, was an interview with John Wellwood. I asked you to read it because it was an article about the term he coined, which has become quite popular, uh, spiritual bypassing. And in it he says, Meditation is frequently used to avoid uncomfortable feelings and unresolved life situations. For those in denial about their personal feelings or wounds, meditation practice can reinforce a tendency toward coldness, disengagement, or interpersonal distance. They are at a loss when it comes to relating directly to their feelings or to expressing themselves personally in a transparent way. It can become quite threatening when those of us on a spiritual path have to face our woundedness, our emotional dependency, or primal need for love. I've often seen, he says, how attempts to be non-attached are used in the service of sealing people off from their human and emotional vulnerabilities. In effect, Identifying oneself as a spiritual practitioner becomes used as a way of avoiding a depth of personal engagement with others that might stir up old wounds or longings for love. It's painful to see someone maintaining a stance of detachment when underneath they are starving for positive experiences of bonding and connection. I'm sure many of us know people like this, and I'm sure many of us have been this person at some point in our practice, whether it's in your meditation practice per se, or just in your motivation to practice, or even just in how you think about spirituality as trying to somehow get above some of the uh, problems that you might not even feel, but just intuit are under the surface. Um, I see in the uh, explosion of people's interest in ayahuasca and other kind of new ceremonial activities also a lot of bypassing um, and a hope that somehow unresolved trauma or grief or trouble in interpersonal relationships will just be resolved somehow 
through the purity of a plant or an experience or an altered state. And I think most of us know that um, the big shifts that happen for us happen with a lot of work. Um, and that meditation is really helpful in learning how to trust ourselves and soothe ourselves and especially reduce our reactivity. Um, but uh, usually the hardest stuff in our life doesn't show up in meditation practice. It shows up in our relationships. And because we're relational beings, which I've talked about, I hope, every day, um, we, can, we need to constantly send our practice back into the relational matrix. Whether that's with colleagues or the people we work with or the people who are closest to us, lovers, friends, children, parents, etc. So during this course, I've avoided using terms like witness, observe, see, um, in favor of touch, feel, embody, somatic, uh, etc., etc. Because what I'm interested in helping you cultivate is an embodied practice. And when I say embodied, I don't just mean that you feel the practice in your body, but that you're willing to bring to your body whatever is showing up in your life. That that, that is allowed to come into the, the space of your body, the space of your practice. Everything that we do, whether it's constructing a persona or um, creating a career for ourselves always involves a shadow. And spiritual bypassing is about avoiding that shadow. So if you feel during your practice that there are mental states, emotional states, degrees of reactivity that you have a really hard time bringing mindfulness to, that's the next step in your practice. That's the next step in your practice. So you might be thinking the ego might be like, oh, I'm going to get really good at concentration or I'm going to become kind of masterful at one particular part of meditative technique. But actually what's really needed is for you to look really closely at the, the places in your life where it's hard to bring mindfulness where it's hard to bring presence, where it's hard to find patience, and figure out how to practice there, and what kind of support you need to practice in those places. So there's a balance. On the one hand, Practice is going to show you patterns that you really need to bring attention to. And on the other hand, um, sometimes practice resolves them without you completely understanding them. So we have to hold both things. We have to hold both things. That's why it's really important that you're honest with yourself about areas where the practice doesn't seem to be working and you get support to figure out how to practice in those areas. 
If you go to your yoga class and you have a great class with wonderful smooth back bending and all the finishing postures just feel so good. And then you go home and you have the same fight with your spouse that you always have. Something's not working, you see. Those things have to get linked together more clearly. Um, it's so prevalent in our culture that we have woundedness from early caregiving relationships. Part of this is um, a function of how our culture uh, raises kids. Uh, two parents, all alone, isolated, expecting to raise a family. It's kind of impossible. Um, when you add to that intergenerational trauma, things happening in the culture at the time, uh, socioeconomic issues, etc., etc., there are so many people in our culture who suffer from having uh, things go wrong in early childhood, mostly in terms of attunement or misattunement, I should say. So then as you uh, age and you become an adult, you find this really manifests in your ability to be alone, in your ability to soothe yourself uh, when the going gets tough, and also um, in dynamics that happen in relationships. It's a cliche, but it is true that sometimes when we have emotionally unavailable uh, parents, we tend to choose emotionally unavailable partners. They're somehow unconsciously very uh, uh, interesting to us and we don't completely understand why. The other thing that I think we all see now that we're adults is that um, relationship troubles give rise or set up the conditions for emotional instability <laughs> or emotional stability. How many of you have been in a breakup where you've been completely insane? <laughs> right? Completely insane. And the other dynamic that's really interesting too is just the way that when you meet somebody as an adult, you have a blueprint in the back of your mind for what a loving adult relationship looks like, which is the blueprint of the adult relationship that you've seen the most amount of time <laughs> in your life. Right? It's just there. It's really unconscious. You can't see that. So then you get into a relationship and, and, and you're comparing your relationship to this blueprint. Even though you might have like sophisticated and clever ideas about all the possibilities of relationship, deep in your heart, you have these other unconscious models that you have to negotiate. And I don't know about you, but I didn't have like the best model. Maybe some of you had really good models. So, I'm not going to get much deeper into spiritual bypassing than that, other, to say, other than to say that 
spiritual bypassing is a huge problem. It's a huge problem. And it's using spiritual practice and using technique also to... I love that sound. That's my childhood. <laughs> my mother hears that sound and thinks of dental bills. <laughs> Do any of you read Shambhala Sun magazine? No, it's called Lion's Roar magazine. No. I wrote an article in October issue, I think, about skateboarding here in Victoria. You should find it if you, if you want. It's, it's about skateboarding as a 40-year-old. <laughs> um, where was I? Oh yeah, so spiritual bypassing is a huge problem and it's using spiritual practice to bypass real developmental work that needs to happen. And that's why it's really, really important to understand the four foundations of mindfulness and to underline constantly how the whole path of meditation in this map that we're using is structured by embodied experience, is structured by feeling, feeling breathing, feeling sensation, actually knowing what it's like to be alive right now. And like I said the other day, don't do anything that takes you out of your body. I didn't say that. Ajahn Buddhadasa said that. So, we ended yesterday with four key insights about mental states. The first is that mental states and states of the heart are not inherently fixed. The second is that you can hold mental states and states of the heart lightly. The third is that mind states are phenomena. They're not who you are. And fourth, you can change your attitude. You can sculpt your attitude. You don't have to be the same person right now that you were an hour ago. One of, the big one of the big challenges for most people when they start learning meditation is um, thinking. So much thinking. Remember the exercises we were doing yesterday? So much thinking. And for some people, thinking is such a powerful force that it keeps them so distracted that they can't get into their body. Um, if you have a lot of planning, for example, it keeps you so focused on fantasies of the future that you can't feel what's actually present in your body. So there seems to be a relationship between mindfulness of the body and spiritual bypassing also. It's much easier to bypass when you're not in your body. So of course, people who are spiritual bypassers or interested in bypassing are not interested in meditative practices that are really somatic. They want to get on with it to the big show, to entertainment. And I was like this as a young man. It's like, I just want to get enlightened. I don't want to like... I remember on the first retreat I went to that they introduced loving-kindness meditation. And I was going to pull my hair out. I thought, why are we thinking about other people? <laughs> <laughs> I 
why all this kindness to other people? Like, this is a practice to get free, not to be wasting our time. <laughs> other people are just in the way, basically. Um, when I first learned this labeling practice that we've been talking about now for a couple of days, the way that I learned it is you do it with your sense organs. So um, at first it feels quite busy. You say hearing, hearing, tasting, tasting, uh, touching, touching, thinking, thinking, feeling, feeling. And the goal is to come back again to mindfulness of breathing. So I think this got a little bit confusing yesterday. It's like, what's the agenda? What's the goal? The goal is you're using noting when there's a lot of thinking to come back to mindfulness of breathing. Um, I wanted to read you something by the master of um, labeling in this past century, Mahasi Sayadaw. He says this, With every act of breathing, the abdomen rises and falls, which movement is always evident. This is the material quality known as vayodhatu, the element of motion. One should begin by noting this movement, which may be done by the mind intensely observing the abdomen. You will find the abdomen rising when you breathe in and falling when you breathe out. The rising should be noticed as rising, the falling as falling. So you see these different ways of noting? If the movement is not evident by just noting it mentally, keep touching the abdomen with the palm of your hand. Don't alter the manner of your breathing. Don't slow it down, don't make it faster. You hear this again, that theme, don't change your breathing. Do not breathe too vigorously either. You will tire if you change the manner of your breathing. Breathe steady as usual and note the rising and falling of the abdomen as it occurs. Note it mentally, not verbally. So don't get too into the name rising, falling, just kind of, it's a whisper. No? In Vipassana, what you name or say doesn't matter. So this part's important. What really matters is the knowing or the perceiving. While noting the rising of the abdomen, do so from the beginning to the end of the movement, as if you're seeing it with your eyes, and do the same with the falling movement. Note the rising movement in such a way that your awareness of it is concurrent with the movement itself. Similarly with the falling movement. Your mind may wander elsewhere, elsewhere while you're noting the abdominal movement. This must also be noted by saying, wandering, wandering. When this has been noted once or twice, the mind stops wandering. If you imagine meeting somebody, note it as meeting, meeting, then go back to rising and falling. If you imagine meeting and talking to somebody, Note, talking, talking. Do you see how, how sophisticated he gets? So, I learned this. wasn't my thing. It's too busy, too much noting. Um, so I just simplified it. Thinking, thinking, 
come back to the breath. Just all thinking is in the category of thinking. And instead of come back to saying rising and falling, I come back to the feeling rising and falling. Or if you need to do a little more noting, future, future, come back to your breathing. Past, past, come back to your breathing. So the point here is that noting words are really important. It's like if you appreciate somebody, but you don't say anything. It doesn't really count. It's so powerful when someone says, oh, thank you, that was really good work you did, or thank you for folding the laundry, or thank you for cleaning up. I thought about that this morning because Kelly was uh, um, sweeping, making piles, and in my house, my wife, she makes piles, but then there's two kids running around, so she never gets to clean the pile. So she makes a pile, and then the kid like takes off, and then, or steals the broom. So oftentimes, I work upstairs in an office, and oftentimes I come downstairs and there's these piles everywhere. <laughs> they never get picked up. It's really great. But I'll still say to her, I really appreciate that you, that you swept up her. A really good thing to say if you live with someone is, I really appreciate the things you did that I can't see. That's also a good, good one. Um, in the precepts ceremony or in the ethics ceremony, I'm thinking about this because we just started uh, on Monday, yesterday, our online, uh, two days ago, our online ethics course that we do every year. And at the end of the ethics course, people can make vows to uphold uh, the principles. And when I ask them, because we do it in person, um, the way it works is you take the course online, it's 10 weeks, and then when I see you in person at a workshop or retreat, we have this ritual that we do that's really beautiful. And then in the ritual, I ask you, can you uphold these precepts? And the person says, yes. And then I ask them again, are you sure? And they say yes. And then I ask them one more time, are you sure? And um, part of that is like three times like, to make sure the words are lined up in your body. And so the same is true with noting. You say it two times to make sure it's lined up. Make sure it's lined up in your body. <clears throat> So labeling has a few different functions. I think it's worth going a little bit deeper into them. Um, one function, which I just mentioned, is just a fuller acknowledgement of what is present right now. I think all of us know you can get a little sloppy in your meditation practice and just start wandering. And if you make a commitment to labeling, maybe it's not every time you sit, but just once in a while if you bring in the labeling practice, it just helps you from getting a little sloppy. And also I think maybe you've felt this already, that when you label, something inside of you relaxes. It's like, oh, thinking, yeah, it's just thinking. And there's something inside of you that says, oh. <laughs> oh, now, now I see it. <laughs>
Another form of labeling that you can explore that I find really interesting is labeling um, wanting. And just saying to yourself, wanting, wanting. And sometimes it's surprising because the wanting is not necessarily uh, negative. It just could be wanting peace, but it's still wanting and still gets in the way. Another benefit of these forms of labeling is that they help you disentangle from the object. By the object here, I mean the distraction. So let's say you're really, really focused in on a particular fantasy. You label it thinking, thinking, or wanting, wanting, or future, future. And then when you come back, you've, you've taken the power out of your investment in that fantasy. And then poof, it changes into something else or disappears altogether. You might find it interesting to also give attention to the tone of the inner voice that's doing the labeling. Notice what kind of tone the labeler has. Sometimes the tone is harsh. Sometimes for some people it can be complacent or for some people it can be bored. The point is there's an attitude that comes along with noting and it's good to pay attention to that attitude. It's often not neutral and matter of the fact and objective. It, it often has something to it. So for example, if you have pain and you note pain, if that's something you want to explore, maybe the tone should be, oh, or maybe it's fuck <laughs> and this can be very helpful for people who have a lot of self-criticism um, not necessarily self-criticism of um, uh, in the way we often think of self-judgment but just self-criticism in their inner mental vocabulary like sometimes you're not a very self-judging person, but then you just might notice there's just a tone of criticism in how you think about yourself in the smaller details that may not be as evident. I worked with someone who experienced a lot of uh, trouble with their temper and lots of rage. Um, and then after they felt rage, they would feel like they were an awful person. So I combined this and our practice was with them was just whenever they felt the rage coming on, they would just say rage, 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 until they could come back to their breathing. So they didn't label it two times. They would label it like as long as the rage was there, they would keep saying what it was. And then they would do it so many times that they would notice the attitude they had inside of them to come back to their breathing, to recognize rage, to name rage, and to also name the attitude that comes with uh, knowing rage. So the key is to notice what's showing up without you in it. 
without you in the rage, just rage. Right? Like it's thinking, but it's not you in the thinking. It's just thinking. Yeah, just don't do it out loud. Yeah, 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 yeah. And maybe you're on the phone with them, and they say the thing that really triggers you. Yeah. And then you just are saying to yourself, rage, 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 and then come back to your breathing until you can come back to your body as the rage passes. That would be interesting to try. It actually reminds me, I just thought of kind of like when we're kids and uh-huh. then when we're parents, uh-huh. we tend to repeat words. Yeah. I remember being like a younger mom and I just, I was almost delirious off of sleep and I would just like say the same thing over and over and we do that for our kids and it's almost calming. Yeah. It's like reinforcing for them, but I think in a way for us too. Yep. Yeah. I was going to mention something about kids too because... It does relate to labeling because when children start to develop language, they start to develop an autobiography of themselves. That's one of the reasons why it's so important for there to be literacy with young kids because the the more vocabulary or, or the more stories a child is exposed to about life the more stories they internalize about how they can talk to themselves and help regulate their own emotions and their own feelings. Um, And it's interesting because kids also need to be alone in order to talk to themselves. So there has to be this balance between being in an environment where they're loved and they're read to and they're told stories, oral stories, like all different kinds of stories, and then so they can be alone and talk to themselves about themselves. And that process of talking to yourself about yourself becomes really important for affect regulation um, as kids grow up. And I'm sure many of you know that there's lots of studies done around this. there's a term that I really love that I've been researching that I won't get into now, but if you want to Google it, it's quite fascinating. It's called emotional granularity. And emotional granularity describes the relationship between people's ability to describe what's happening to themselves emotionally and their ability to regulate. So there is this interesting relationship between language and emotional regulation. And I would say that language is not just verbal language, but it can also be like physical language. Like when we're moving around on the floor, like all of that is learning a vocabulary that's uh, helping us also. So if you have kids, it's really important not to, you know, just use the same cliche like, how is school? 
but um, just find out what they're interested in and try and have a discussion. Because kids internalize the ability to have discussion. And that discussion allows them to have discussion internally in their own mind. We're almost heading into a tangent. Imagine you're in fifth grade and you're having difficulty keeping up pace with reading and you can't stay focused because you don't really like the reading because you can't keep up with it and then you become less interested in reading and then the books are bad. You heard of this scenario? And the teachers are not so great. And the teachers are not picking up on the fact that um, you're not into reading. So they just keep on plowing through the curriculum. You're losing interest. The books are not so good. Rachel's not your instructor. <laughs> and then when you get home, parents don't really talk to you in a way that really gets into your body. And what you talk about doesn't go into your parents' body. It stays distracted or stays on the surface or nobody talks. And then you have more difficulty keeping pace, and then you lose the ability to have reading comprehension. Um, and then you hate to read. Does this happen for anybody? And then when you do read, you get nothing out of reading, because all your reading is now passive. It's something you just have to do, or you're kind of bored with it. Like, you don't know how to read. You're not a good reader, because you haven't learned to read. So what happens is that your language problems now become reading problems. And then your reading problems become language problems. And then those language problems make it hard for you to follow directions. But then they affect your ability to have an inner world that's rich with dialogue and nuance and uh, <coughs> processing and so on. Um, in uh, psychology, it's called uh, verbal mediation. The ability to use words to mediate what's going on inside of you. It's like, it's like I'll say it more simply, it's like using language to regulate your behavior and feelings by talking to yourself, basically. And so a lot of kids with language and reading problems um, aren't using language as a way of regulating themselves. So for example, then you're in grade eight and you have a crush on someone. And you say to yourself, I have a crush on someone. Or you don't even have the ability to say to yourself, I have a crush on someone. But if you have a crush on someone, one really good question would be to ask yourself, uh, what's the best way to talk to them? What would be the best way to talk to them? And then to start to play out all the different scenarios. 
of what would happen if you talked to someone. But if you didn't have this ability to process that internally with language, and I mean all different kinds of language, it's not always just words, then um, you lose this kind of verbal conscience that can guide you forward in your relationship. So it goes all the way back to a language problem that's a reading problem, a reading problem that creates a language problem, a language problem that creates a communication problem, communication problem that then creates an internal communication problem, and then it's hard to mediate internal emotions and behavior and so on. There's a very famous um, Zen teaching, which is um, you can't eat a, rice, a painted rice cake. You cannot eat a painted rice cake. It doesn't satisfy hunger. Right? So if you see a painting of a painted rice cake, it's language, it's painting. It can't satisfy your hunger. It's not the real thing. And in Zen, for many, many years, this was like primary theory of meditation, is we don't like language. Language is, we're trying to get beyond language. Because you can't eat a painted rice cake. That's just the form. That's the painted rice cake, so you should get beyond language. Then in the 13th century, there was a Zen master named Dogen. Um, some of you know I, I reference a lot. And uh, Dogen said, um, only a painted rice cake can satisfy hunger because all hunger is painted hunger. Only a painted rice cake can satisfy hunger because all hunger is painted hunger. It's very beautiful. So what he's saying is, there is no truth beyond language. Human beings swim in language. We all swim in language. So yes, in meditation, we're trying to drop lower than language. Absolutely. But if you just try to do that all the time, that's bypassing. That's meditative bypassing. We need to use language. We need to use language and see language and see story. You see? but just as language and just as story, not as like how life really is. Because the fact is, all hunger, all longing is painted. It's kind of an, isn't that a beautiful teaching? That all hunger is not, it's, it's learned. It's constructed hunger. Maybe there's a biological impulse, but by the time it gets to consciousness, it's morphed through culture. You know, it's not like I have hunger for uh, love. It's I have hunger for love with that person. <laughs> That's painted. It's constructed. It's sculpted. So. It's not easy. It's really simple. Um, let me mention some drawbacks to this practice. The first is it can become too mechanical. So you want to make sure there's some vitality in your noting practice. The second, it can be done for too long. You don't note a whole meditation practice. You note for half of a meditation practice. 
If you're sitting for 30 minutes, note for 15 minutes and then drop it. It's just a vehicle for helping you come back to your body. It's not an end in itself. If you're good at noting, then you can drop it and be in your body. Uh, it's really bad practice for people with OCD. If you're like really into counting, it's a really bad practice for you. I've never had that experience, so, so I don't know it sort of firsthand, but um, if, you, if you're one of those people that can, tries to control your internal experience by counting or measuring or saying things many times, this probably wouldn't be a helpful practice. This, if reinforcing that, I think, wouldn't be that, that helpful. I remember when I was a kid sitting in synagogue, being bored out of my mind, and then just counting light fixtures, light bulbs, filaments, <laughs> anything I could count, just to try and somehow escape the, the boredom. Thought I was going to blow up. <laughs> Some people like to start notice, noting at the beginning of their set, um, and some like to introduce it when they're a little more concentrated. So just decide who you are and how you like to, to, um, um, to do this. So I don't know if you noticed today during the guided meditation, I introduced it at the, right at the end. I left you only five minutes to do the noting practice. I find that when I'm getting concentrated on my breathing um, and my mind is just wavering like a little bit, sometimes I'll bring the noting in there, right? So it's not, so sometimes I don't, like it sounds like you'd only use it when you're really, really busy, but sometimes it's like a helpful thing just to bring in like when your mind is just flickering a little bit like a candle flame, you know? Candle's not going out, but it's just a little bit of a flicker. There's some winds in there. As your mind gets quieter and quieter and more concentrated, it's important to adjust the intensity of the labeling so it becomes quieter and quieter, so it's just a whisper. And this is the most important point of the day, is that the primary thing you're doing is mindfulness, not labeling. I'm going to say that many times today. But the primary purpose of the labeling is just to have mindfulness of your body. So we say, we say, but in the insight meditation tradition, it's often said 5% is the labeling, 95% is experiencing what's there. So 5% of your attention is on the label, thinking, thinking, 95% is what's there. And some people don't get this at all. They do 95% energy on the labeling and only 5% of what's there. And that just gets really heady and busy and kind of intellectual. 
I feel like what you're really doing under the surface, if you look at it through this lens of intimacy, <coughs> is you're basically saying to yourself, stay here, stay here, stay here. I'm not going to abandon you. <coughs> keep staying here. I'm not going to abandon you. So to sum up, when we're meditating, we're allowing ourselves to be nothing other than a body and mind settled in experience. And that's just authentic. Right? Just to feel in an authentic way what's happening in the present moment without referring it to a me, a self. And to have the courage that even when the shadows appear, sometimes the way I think of it is like what a lot of people do is they start to see that there's things in their life that don't really relate to their practice. And so what they do is they hide those things. They put them in a cupboard. Then they push the door closed. And then they take a drill, and screw the door, and then they hang a beautiful Tibetan tanka over the door. And then they put their teak cabinet in front of the door. And they put an altar there, and now they're all spiritual. <laughs> and then, as they practice, all kinds of stuff starts leaking out from under the door. And then they think, oh, it's the wrong kind of practice. The practice is not working, because all this stuff is leaking out of the door. The point is, is that because practice is working, stuff starts leaking out of the door. And that's why all of these techniques you're learning in this course are designed to bring you into your feeling body and to really see how you want to run away and transcend and bypass and keep bringing it back again and again and again and again and again with the support of good teaching, your capacity to be awake and... Uh, community. So that's all I have to say about labeling. We're going to spend the rest of our day uh, enacting this together. But before we end, are there any questions before we transition into being facilitators again? Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. 
Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.